Good day, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome to our fourth episode of Series 6 of This Week in Startups Australia. Our theme for Series 6, taking the Australian startup ecosystem from good to great, continues as we ask, can tech do good? That's a question that can-do app creator Rachel Lonergan asked herself when she struggled to manage her life with breast cancer. Her solution is both simple and ingenious, but can it become a successful startup? Can the good idea become the good business model? Then we'll chat with Andrea Gardner, founder and CEO of Jellix Ventures. Jellix has a unique open structure that encourages both investors and startups to leverage the firm's expertise. Jellix has a different model. But is it good? Going from great to good on this episode of This Week in Startups Australia. This Week in Startups Australia is proudly sponsored by MYOB. Running a startup is pretty cool, but doing the books isn't. MYOB makes it easier. For your free trial, visit myob.com slash twista. Twista is also sponsored by the University of Technology, Sydney, driving the next generation of entrepreneurs. UTS is equipping a new breed of startup founders by engaging, inspiring, and connecting driven students. If you'd like to mentor, invest in, or support UTS startups, email startups at uts.edu.au. back, I very suddenly got quite ill. Now, I was lucky because I had one very good friend who was prepared to take me to the emergency department in the middle of the night when I was sick and freaking out and not thinking clearly. And fortunately, I wasn't sick for very long and I'm all better now. But that's not going to be true for everyone. People can get sick and be sick for long periods of time. So how do they cope? How do you get things done when you're too sick to even consider doing them for yourself? These are exactly the questions that confronted our next guest on This Week in Startups Australia. And her solution, well, it's both unique and potentially game-changing. To talk about that, I'd like to welcome Rachel Lonergan to This Week in Startups Australia. Rachel, you got sick. Yes, uh, late 2008. In fact, it was like a couple of weeks before Christmas. I was diagnosed with um, an aggressive breast cancer. Okay, so you immediately just focus your efforts on treating that and mm -hmm. getting well. But what did you learn through that experience? Uh, I learned that I'm really, really bad at accepting offers of help, um, <laughs> as most of us are. I also learned that lots of people offer to help. And the usual polite response to that is to say, no, no, I'm fine. I don't need any help. I can, you know, I can, I can do things without help. And there's some things that happen in that uh, environment um, that you you wouldn't expect you would need help with, but you know, as they occur, you suddenly realise that maybe you're not as capable as you once used that you used to be. So for me, the the the, the uh, you know light bulb moment was standing in front of my bed and realising just after a friend had gone home that I couldn't change my sheets because I couldn't lift my arm. 
And she had, she'd actually offered to help me do stuff. And I said, no, no, I'm fine. I don't need any help. So so that for me was that moment where I thought there's got to be a better way of connecting uh, people who need help with the people who want to help them. Okay. So that led to you thinking very long and very hard about how to do this connecting. Yeah. And somehow that became an app. Could you take us through that journey? Yeah. It, it took a long time to go from this idea of, you know, there's got to be a better way um, of, of, you know, helping the two sides of this relationship. And at one point, I thought it was a campaign because I have a back background as an advertising strategist. Uh, so I instantly kind of go to that kind of model. Um, and then I thought maybe it's an ebook, just making people aware of the problem. And then I thought I looked at models where you make somebody aware of an issue. And often the criticism is that there's no practical application following on from that question raising. So I didn't, I didn't want. Um, this to suffer that same fate. So so then it became kind of obvious that there had to be an app to kind of support the idea. And what is this app? Uh, the Can Do app. Um, it basically organises your team of willing helpers. Um, it allows you to schedule tasks and appointments and all sorts of things. Your team can self-allocate, or they, or you can allocate them into tasks um, that they've that you particularly want them to help you with. And it can be anything. It can be anything around the house. It can be. Um, I often refer to financial paperwork because that's something I found really overwhelming when I was sick. There's right. lots of lots of interacting with banks and insurance companies and right. things like and that. People have what they call chemo brain, right? If you're totally. doing chemo, chemotherapy, yeah. my friends have reported that when they get chemo brain, they just can't think straight. Yeah, absolutely. And there'd be times where I would have had chemo, and um, you know, having to deal with insurance companies and. You know, you have to be kind of lucid, and you know, you're not at your best. It's not the, it's not, it's <laughs> no, you're not you, at your you best. You don't want to deal with those people when you are feeling your best, but right. when you're not, it's it's not great. So there's there's kind of um, something everybody can contribute to that, and people really want you to give them a job. Um, other people have used the analogy of it's like a gift registry of tasks, if you like. You know, gift registries. Some people hate them. Other people um, are relieved by them because it takes away that kind of element of having to you know, think too hard about what this person might want or might not want and, right. and maybe getting it wrong. Um, so um, it kind of works for both the person who needs help and the person offering the help. Okay, so you get the app as the person needs the help. Mm -hmm. You ask the people who want to help to get the app as well. You all sort of log in and, and all of the magic happens. Yeah. So you had the idea for what the app would do, but again, you're not a coder, no. you're a person in advertising. How did you make the app real at that point? Uh, I guess I, that was a really good question. <laughs> I, I tend to be a, I'm an ideas person and I've come to realise that this world is all about execution. So I've had to become that person pretty quickly. But uh, definitely uh, I, had, I had to firstly find the funding um, mm -hmm. to make the app real. And um, I was very lucky that um, in the early stages of the idea, um, I was able to get some funding through the Garvin Institute of Medical Research, who um, at that time were working with a number of different kind of um, ideas in a similar space to try and you know see what they could bring to the table for um, patient support, which is not something that they typically... Uh, that's not kind of the business they're in. Um, and that meant that I was able to find um, developers to help me build the app. Um, and uh, I guess I've learned an enormous amount along the way, um, but I still am, uh, you know, really conscious that my role is very much kind of the strategic part of uh, the creation of Can Do 
And um, I'm good though because I know what I don't know. So, which is what、yeah. we can say for a lot of people in the world. So, that, I mean, you you managed to find the resources、mm-hmm. to build the app. The app's now available for、yeah. both iOS and Android,、mm-hmm. so people can download the CanDo app right now. Yes. But at some point, and this is in the past sort of six months, you decided that okay, you have the app, but you now needed to think about making a business out of this. You needed、yeah. to make a startup. Why? What? What produced that decision? Um, there's there's two there's two things behind that. The first thing is so many people coming to me and saying, "This is such a great idea and applicable across、um, a whole range of different situations where people need help, such as、um, uh, first baby,、um, aged care,、um, other chronic illnesses,、um, injury, um, uh, mental health,、um, all sorts of reasons why somebody may go through a period of time." Where they need people to kind of pitch in around them.、Um, there's also quite a lot of interest in that idea from, you know, government departments and people like that because they can sort of see the efficiency benefits from the long-term application of those kinds of ideas. So, you know, that's an area that I'm particularly interested in.、Um, and the second reason, really, is kind of a cultural one、um, that I've come to understand a lot better. In my dealings with、uh, not-for-profits and people like that, and certainly when you come from the commercial kind of entrepreneurial world, which I have, the not-for-profit culture is can be quite a shock. And there are people inside that kind of world who are doing amazing work, and and you know everything's you know they're they're really progressive and innovative.、Uh, generally, though, they they do move at a slightly slower pace,、uh, and that's because they have a lot of stakeholders and boards and.、Right. And um, uh, you know, have governance and things like that that they have to be really careful right, and, about. And they're integrated into very large communities, as、yeah. you point out. And communities, while they do move, tend to move at a stately pace、yeah. rather than at a rapid clip. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, what I've seen with Candu since we made the apps available is a, is pretty rapid growth in terms of the uptake, and、um, definitely rapid growth in terms of the uptake of the idea. And and people quickly seeing opportunity for it. So so that's something that I'm I'm really keen to harness and become、um, a, like a, a profit for purpose enterprise rather than、uh, something that is kind of curtailed, if you like, through having to go through all the hoops that that needs to happen in the not for profit space. Okay, so you see this as being a better way to be able to provide benefit is to create a for profit app. Absolutely, and I think、uh, I mean I've come to it's it's been a long and difficult、um, journey to get to that conclusion, but but I definitely feel that ultimately the ultimate benefit and the objectives that I originally had in in creating the app、um, are actually going to be better delivered and delivered at a much greater scale under the new model. Now this led to I guess what we think of as a momentous decision where you decided to leave your. Quarter-century <laughs> career in advertising behind,、yeah. and to sort of strike out as a startup entrepreneur—that's not a decision that you make. I think mildly. What led to that?、Uh, well, the balance between the day job and building Candu was just becoming really, really difficult to、mm-hmm. manage. That's the first thing. The demands on my time for Candu、uh, were too great, and. I mean, we've been really, really lucky. We've had a lot of publicity, and、um, you know, if I'm leaving work in the middle of the day to go and do a TV interview or, or something like that, you know, that that can be problematic.、Um, you know, 
once is okay, but, you know, three or four times, you know, you start to sort of try and figure out where your priorities are. Mm. So I really had to come to that conclusion. Um, and it's also forced me to really focus on the future of can-do and how we get there in a fast and, um, you know, really well thought through way uh, where we have a really good quality product and we're delivering great things to as many people as possible. Okay, so the heart of that has to be a business model. How do you take a product that you've basically designed to be free so that people can grab it and connect? How do you turn that into something that then generates revenue so that you can have investors and you can be generating profit to keep CanDo going on? Yeah. The, go- the goal uh, was always to put the burden of can-do's costs onto uh, onto corporates, into the corporate environment. So um, probably the most difficult way of achieving that is through things like partnerships and sponsorships, which is probably the the model that most NFP-style products would would go down that pathway. And that also ends up being a fickle model because you can have sponsorship one week and then no sponsorship the next week. That's right, yeah. And, of course, you're you're beholden to, you know, the vagaries of – uh, economies and yeah. and things like that. Well, there's a down quarter. They cut their sponsorships. That's right. Yeah. Um, so, and anybody who works in the charitable sector know knows that getting a dollar out of anybody these days is incremental is exponentially harder than it than it was in the past. So, um, the model is more about things like. Um, uh, affiliate opportunities. So one of the one of the um, examples that we're going to be investigating is affiliate marketing. So, for example, in the task lists, we plan to make them uh, make dynamic task lists that can link to providers of goods and services. Mm-hmm. And when that results in a transaction, you know, obviously we'll take a percentage of whatever that transaction has generated. So that's that's one pathway that we're, we're really interested in, um, connecting to the relevant goods and services um, that that audience um, would automatically be looking for anyway. You know, gifting's a big area, particularly, um, that, and there's actually more and more businesses popping up now um, trying to, you know, put empathy back into the way that you gift in this particular category. So there's lots of opportunity to partner with those kinds of people. Um, There's obviously things like um, uh, uh, I think as we grow the platform, we're going to learn a lot more about our audience and there's there's information in there that's going to be really valuable for things uh, for future planning, particularly for for organisations like um, government health services, mm. um, uh, organisations that that look at health policy and things like that. We want to be able to prove in the coming twelve months that people who use an app like Can Do have better outcomes at the end of their experience. So, be that they have better overall. Um, health and well-being. And that sounds strange, you know, you're talking about somebody who might be having treatment for cancer or something like that. But, you know, you want to be able to, even even if you're being treated for cancer, you need to be considerate of things like your diet and exercise yeah. and things like that. Well, and in fact, there's a very big emphasis now for exercise yeah. for people in chemo because it figures it makes the chemo a lot more effective, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, I mean, there's, I, I get... Um, I get messages from oncologists, you know, people who specialise in those kinds of research areas. Mm. Um, I'm talking to um, a uh, an academic at the moment who who works in oncology around the idea of um, uh, can do providing uh, better overall outcomes and everybody feeling that they have contributed to the successful 
um, well-being of the person that they love. So there's there's lots of people who are really interested in um, researching this particular area. And um, as we all know, in Australia and everywhere else around the world, you know, health costs are, are growing all the time. And so we're always looking for ways, or government authorities and people like that are always looking for way where the, ways where they can um, apply new thinking to deliver um, better efficiency and effectiveness in that area. Right. And I can see them doing that. But from my point of view, it would be around me being able to express my love mm. for someone and that you've actually created a platform that makes that something that's more facilitated. I mean, it doesn't make it more loving, but it makes it easier to facilitate how I would show that love. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it's really important to think about the person providing that love or that help um, almost as much as the person going through treatment. Um, I still nearly, it's been nine years since I had my treatment. Uh, I still have friends who say to me, you know, we wish you'd let us help more. And I think about that and I think, well, it's nine years later and they're still carrying around that feeling that they should have done more or they could have done more. And in some ways it was my responsibility to give them that gift and uh, can do, if nothing else, it's a, it's a great validation of your friendships and relationships. Rachel yeah. Lonigan, thank you for joining us in This Week in Startups Australia. Thank you, Mark. MYOB saves businesses time, helps improve cash flow, gets invoices paid faster, gives real-time visibility of profit and loss, and makes payroll easy. With MYOB, you can create, send, and track customized invoices. This is awesome because Australian businesses can wait on average 43 days to get paid. With MYOB, your clients can pay you directly from your invoices. People who use the MYOB online invoicing solution get paid four times faster. MYOB software will let you know when you've been paid, then update the accounts. You don't have to lift a finger. MYOB's online solutions make pay runs quick and easy, ensuring all of your tax and super payments are compliant with the Australian Tax Office. You can save half a day every month on processing employee pay. MYOB's mobile app means you can create a quote on the job, send invoices straight from the app, and even get paid on the same day you invoice. 1.2 million businesses in Australia and New Zealand use MYOB. Startups, sole traders, and small businesses, all the way up to companies with hundreds of staff. Whatever your stage or size, MYOB has a solution for you. Twista listeners will get a free 30-day trial, and the first 50 people to sign up will also get $100 in cash. Go to myob.com slash twista for your free trial today. A few weeks back, Jason Calacanis roared into town for Launch Sydney. 
The day before the conference, he hosted an Angel University, which was a smaller event, about 60 people, in which he covered the essential points of early stage investing in tech startups. Now, that's not terrifically hard. It's not terrifically different from other kinds of investing, but it does require some specialized knowledge. Even a sophisticated investor may not want to step into angel investing because they don't know enough to do it well, which gets it put into the too hard basket. So to overcome that, investors either work together in a syndicate or can pair up with an investment partner such as Jellix Ventures. Jellix is one of a select set of Australian investors that seeks to work with and educate its investors, bringing them inside the ring so they can understand and learn firsthand how to invest in startups. And as demonstrated by the wildly positive response Jason received for Angel University, it's the kind of education that we sorely need here in Australia. Joining us on This Week in Startups Australia is founder and CEO of Jellix Ventures, Andrea Gardner. Andrea, welcome. Thank you for having me here. It's lovely. So tell me a little bit about Jellix and why it's really different than what we think of when we think of as a VC fund. Well, it is different. Um, It's a little bit of a hybrid business in that it's a bit VC fund and a bit equity crowdfunding platform. Um, But we are quite different from both. Uh, And our major difference, I think, the major difference with a a venture capital, a big formal venture capital fund is that we're kind of democratising access to um, what we think and judge are the best startup deals. Um, Okay, so when you say democratising access, what's the process there? Well, to invest in a large venture capital fund, there's a pretty big minimum check size. And I think... So by democratising access, our minimum investment is $10,000. Right. Um, but we don't go as far as to democratise it to, um, so that it, then our investments are not available to retail investors. So we don't, have, we don't operate under the equity crowdfunding regulations. Um, and that's very deliberate because I do think that these very early stage investments um, are a high-risk asset that I personally don't feel comfortable Um so you're asking for people who would qualify as what we'd call sophisticated Correct. investors, yep. which is, I think, what, $2 million in assets and $250,000 of annual income? Two fifty annual income for two years and or assets of $2.5 million, I think. Okay. Yep. So, so when they fall into that class, then ASIC considers that they know what to do with their money yep. and then they're allowed to bring it to Jellix. Yes. Yeah. Um, and... We look. I I invest myself, so um, you know I I feel that we've got between myself and my husband Ian Gardner, who's you know pretty deeply immersed in the startup sector. We have um, pretty good uh, access, you know deal flow, I think, and access to good deals. Um, I spend an awful lot of time. You know, I only invest in one out of hundreds that I see, and um, you know I do a lot of due diligence. I spend a disproportionate amount of time getting to know the founder because I see that is um, particularly important with the earlier stage that a do, company Do you see, found. when Jason was here, he did stress the fact that the two qualities he looks for are capability and passion. Are those your two tip, tick boxes in a founder or are there others that you see as important? Um, passion's absolutely critical. I agree with Jason. Without that, um, they're not going to be able to survive the depth of the troughs <laughs> that are inevitable in the journey. Um Capability, yep. Uh, I look for um, a voracious appetite to learn. 
a, a huge amount of intellectual firepower coupled with a lack of emotional impediments to learning ego getting in the way, okay. that type of thing. So that, that this is someone who doesn't need to be the smartest person in the room. Correct, yeah. And someone that uh, I think if they, don't recon- if they can't recognize that um, they've got, you know, no one can be great at everything. Yeah. Um, if they can't recognize their own weaknesses, they're not going to be able to recruit people that are, you know, filling in the, their gaps and build a really strong team because an excellent founder is never going to be able to do it on their own. They have to build it. They have to have the capacity to build a good team. The second startup that I worked on, and by far I think over the years the most successful one called Shiva Corporation, one of the co-founders was the head of engineering, Frank. And Frank told me his philosophy was always to be the dumbest person in the room, and he was quite a smart guy. He said, if I'm doing that, then I'm doing it right because that means I surrounded myself with really smart people, which he did. And, you know, he then sold the company to Intel for about a half a billion dollars a few Mm. years later on because he embodied that philosophy. He didn't run it with a lot of ego. I, I think it's really important. And Gilex itself is a startup. And um, I had, you know, I'm based at Stone and Chalk and a couple of guys, uh, you know, f- they're friends, you know, sitting opposite me commented on um, how excellent Alon is, my investment associate, and said, oh, how lucky I am. And I just sort of bridled almost. And I said, there's no luck in it. He is excellent, but he's excellent because I've put a huge amount of research into finding out how to recruit. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just put an awful lot of work into that because I knew that um, the calibre of your hires must be A calibre at minimum and you can't drop that as as a founder of a startup that's just critical. Okay, so I'm a sophisticated investor. I rock up with, here's my check for $10,000. What am I going to do with that money? What's the Jellix process? Well, I'm going to go back and ignore that question for a second. I'll come back to it. The other critical thing with a founder is integrity and someone I trust. Ah, Yes. Someone I think I can enjoy, I'm going to work with. I won't invest in anyone no matter how awesome an opportunity it looks like if if I've got any warning bells about that. Going back to your question, you've got $10,000 you want to invest. Um, If you've got $10,000 you want to invest, I would say don't invest in a startup, (laughs) to be honest. Because I, I'm, I'm, for me, it's really, really important that um, angel investors invest in a way, one, that they're investing in companies that are most likely to produce a good return for them and least likely to lose their money. Mm. And that overall, they structure their portfolio so that they're most likely to get great returns. And there seems to be two types, two ways to invest profitably in startups. Um, one, you can be an entrepreneur with particular expertise and ex- say, you know, a second time entrepreneur, or whatever, with particular expertise. You invest in half a dozen companies, you roll your sleeves up, work a day a week. And a lot of those uh, angel investors can do extremely well. The more passive investors, which are really the people that invest with me, they, um, you know, statistically, they need to invest in a minimum of about 20 companies over right. two years, 2022 over about two years. So you're talking about maybe about $200,000. If it's $10,000 a pop, it'd be a minimum of $200,000. Yeah. And this is, an, and I actually did explain this to Jason when I had him on the show. This is the Turak dentist. Yeah, right? with exactly. The, with the yep. self-managed super fund yeah. who needs to make some portion of his investment portfolio in riskier investments and yep. may want to do this. Yep. All right. Yeah, exactly. So you you know, if you've got two hundred thousand, you invest you know ten thousand in um, each of twenty companies, and you have, and it's really important to have the discipline 
not to get too excited by one and invest, a, be tempted to invest a bit more or or less or whatever. So, you in other words, to really hedge your risk. Absolutely, because out of twenty investments, you're definitely going to lose your money on some. Right. You you, but you're relying on one, two, maybe three to produce the return that you, the returns that you want f- across the entire portfolio of twenty investments. Now, how many investments has Jellix participated in to this point? Um, I think we've led. 10 and I think we've got the 11th uh, on the go at the moment. Okay, so you haven't quite filled out my dance card if I need my 20, but how long have you been up and running now? Um, I think it's almost a couple of years, so okay. yeah. I've spent right. a lot of time on, you know, one person, AFSL licenses, all that sort of stuff. Ah, okay, yeah. but in terms of the active, making the active placements, that's been more recent. No, um, I just had about five or six months where I was concentrating on some legal stuff, yeah. um, and you know, uh, the you know the the regulatory side of things that I just didn't do any investments, and actually there was a gap there where I just didn't find any that I thought were a strong enough opportunity to invest in. Right now. They've all built up over the last couple of years, and I've got a big fat pipeline, which is really exciting. So, there's uh, how are you clearing sort of one a new one in a month or something like that? Or? Well, this is going to be the first one this year, but we've got got them backed up to do hopefully fortnightly for probably the next few months. Goodness, you're going to be keeping your lawyers very busy. Absolutely. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so if I'm a startup. Yep. What does Jellix offer me as a model? At what stage am I interested in talking to Jellix about funding? What kinds of funding deals do you do with startups? So we invest. Um, we leave it, We have invested pre MVP, but it have to be really strong opportunity in lots of other ways. Um, super strong founder, you know that obvious huge global market and. Mm-hmm some evidence of product market fit or whatever that product is going to be that there is a market out there for it Mm -hmm. and that it is a huge market that is really rapidly scalable. Um, And then, you know, our sweet spot is seed up to and including Series A. Okay, so... Put some numbers to those because those are very fungible seed, meaning sort of a quarter million Series A, meaning up to. Well, look, the, uh, early on, I think we've you know we've we've done some up you know the whole round round is a hundred hundred and fifty, um, and then the current one at the moment is two million. Okay, so, so more and it might actually even be more. Sorry, more Series A territory. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. this is our first proper Series A. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so there's there's a nice range there in terms of the size of the startup. Are you focusing on any specific kinds of startups, specific kinds of sectors that you're interested in or reflect your expertise? No, um, we're pretty agnostic. I mean, they have to be sort of technology and probably not generally not that keen on uh, hardware. <laughs> um, but although I am about to probably invest in one. Um, <laughs> Having had a, a failed hardware startup, I know exactly what you're talking about. Hardware's hard. Hardware's hard. You know, it's really hard. Yep. Um, and so I'm very careful about that. I mean, I'm interested in things like, um, you know, blockchain, cryptos, all that stuff, but I'm definitely not investing in those areas at the moment because I think I'd have to invest an awful lot of time and effort into getting up the learning curve. It also feels very immature right now. Like there's a lot more stuff that needs to happen before you start to get get enough data to be able to make sensible investment decisions is how it feels. I I certainly don't feel equipped to make those decisions at the moment. Um, But you shouldn't 
have to be a cryptographer in order to be able to make those investment decisions. That's what I'm saying about it being immature. I think that in some yes. ways they're not speaking enough of the language of investment yet for that to happen. Yeah, I would agree with you. Yeah. I would agree with you. Okay, so where is Jellix going? So um, our next step, um, so this current investment into an awesome company called Synorbis that we've got on the platform at the moment is our first actually up, up on the platform. So uh, it's just sort of streamlining those processes of um, do, leading the investment rounds on the platform. Mm. Then um, we've had quite a few uh, inv- investors, um, you know, family offices and larger institutions say that we've been a bit burnt by investing in startups. We would prefer to invest in a fund. So um, there's a there's a clear appetite there for that. So we'll probably raise an early stage venture capital fund later in the year. So they feel much more comfortable having some managers, some fund managers be in the middle there between them in their investment. That's well, I think what's happened, and I've spoken to uh, quite a f- uh, three family offices in the States and a few here, and they've had the same experience in that they've treated, um, they've approached investing in a startup the same way that they've impro- approached um, investing in companies a bit further down the track and they've had their fingers burnt. Right. They haven't realised that while the parameters that you look at are pretty pretty similar, well, they're the same, they're differentially weighted in that the quality of the founder is critical exactly. in an early stage company. Yeah. Um, if the founder wobbles or fails or whatever, you've essentially lost your money in the startup, but a, say a, a SME it, the company might wobble, it might hurt a bit, but you can you, you, can, know, replace you can swap parts. out the CEO yeah. and hope, and you can recover and you haven't definitely lost your money, but you've almost definitely lost it with an early stage company. So we're in very early days with equity crowdfunding mm-hmm. here in Australia and even ASIC is still, I think, sort of feeling its way around this. Do you reckon that within another couple of years, Jellix will be able to be a little bit more open to retail investors because of that? Or do you think you're going to sort of keep yourself restricted to to mostly sophisticated investors? Look, I think I'll probably keep myself mostly restricted to sophisticated investors. Um, look, our, our business model is quite... It took me a long time to sort of work out my business model. Um, you know, the lower hanging fruit for me were all the startups that were wanting inve- uh, access to my investors and mm. were offering me crazy amounts of money, like 10% and more at times, to um, to offer their investment opportunity to my investors. Um, but to me, that was a that was um, was a bit short term thinking because for me, I feel quite passionate about the startup sector in Australia, that it's a critical economic imperative. Innovation in the startup sector in Australia is a critical economic imperative for Australia and the future of my kids, Um, which means I want to do the best I can for the startup sector. And to me, that means getting funding and fuel for growth into the strongest startup opportunities so the investors get a good return. They're more likely to reinvest in the startup sector and tell their friends, and they're they're more likely to reinvest in the startup sector. And everybody wins that way, but I think if you're, um, you know, if you're supporting the the perhaps less strong opportunities, then I think there's the risk that you know the investors um, are more likely to lose their money in an already high risk asset. And I think that to me is the fundamental, for me anyway, flaw with the traditional equity crowdfunding model in that you have um, startups that 
um, forgive me if I'm going to offend anybody, but the, usually I would expect to have not been able to raise elsewhere and so therefore they're prepared to pay a whopping 8% or something to go on an equity crowdfunding platform. And then some of them clip the ticket on both sides and also charge the investors, say, 5% carry. To me, that's a bit of a conflict of interest. Um, There's no analysis done or required by the regulations on the strength of the, the commercial strength of the investment opportunity. There's a few sort of bankruptcy checks and basic things like that, but there's nothing done on, there's no work done on, is this likely to succeed? Is there a good reason to think we're going to get good returns on this? You know? So, yeah. Andrea Gardner, thank you very much for joining us on This Week in Startups Australia. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Entrepreneurship. It's the heart of the student experience at the University of Technology, Sydney. With almost half of UTS students wanting to create their own jobs or start their own companies, equipping students with the tools to become entrepreneurs has become critical to their success. Sydney's leadership and strength as Australia's largest startup ecosystem requires a steady, well-supported pipeline of entrepreneurial talent. Working at the heart of this ecosystem, UTS plays a critical role, inspiring and connecting thousands of talented students into that pipeline. UTS is committed to ensuring a thriving and growing base for the startup sector, investing heavily in this future today for Australia's tomorrow. Get in touch. Email startups at uts.edu.au to find out more. We recently launched a new segment for Series 6 of This Week in Startups Australia, asking all of the many incubator and accelerator programs running across the country to spruik their programs to twist our listeners in their own words. This week, we'll hear from James Alexander, who runs the Incubate program at Sydney University. Take it away, James. Hi there. My name's uh, James Alexander. I'm the program manager and co-founder of Incubate, which is the University of Sydney's uh, accelerator program. Uh, we're, we're an interesting one because we started way back in 2012 where there were, when there was not a lot of um, accelerator programs at university. Uh, and the story I generally like to say is, you know, back then uh, a lot of people didn't think students were interested in entrepreneurship. Turns out six years later that they're really interested um, and we're now become one of the largest startup programs uh, aimed at students in Australia. So we've graduated 88 startups. Uh, we serve the University of Sydney communities, which means sort of alumni, researchers um, and undergraduate students. But anyone's invited along to our events and our big demo day that we run twice a year. Um, the program runs twice a year, as I just mentioned. Um, so if you are affiliated with the university, you're more than welcome to jump on our website and check it out and apply. Um, in terms of successes, we've got quite a lot. There's 88 <laughs> uh, startups to choose from, but in ter- I'll just rattle off a few that are, I think quite interesting. There's one called Abyss Solutions, which is a ro- underwater robotics startup doing really well. Um, uh, for example, they're mapping the Hoover Dam as we speak. Um, we've got another startup called Wipe Hero, 
which is a waterless car washing marketplace, which is doing really well and does more than just car washing, but uh, more on that later. Um, we've got another startup called um, um, Uprise, which is a mental health startup for enterprise and makes big differences to the employees and their businesses and uh, lots of other. And, and uh, probably the other one is, is Vertiplane, which is a vertical uh, takeoff. Uh, it's basically a flying taxi, you know, and they came through our program recently as well and they're doing really well. Um, and so we see all sorts of stuff from robotics to software to consumer apps. And uh, that's, that's one of the best things about our programs. Check out our website, incubate.org.au. It's got everything there. Rachel Lonergan turned her personal tragedy into a new way to connect and express love, to bring out the best in people. Andrea Gardner has found a way to take some of the weak spots in Australia's investment ecosystem and make them the strengths. In both cases, we see people working from incredible dedication and incredible passion, using both of those to transmute the worst parts into some of the best elements, translating the broken bits into the strongest elements. That's the kind of thinking that makes our world a better place. That's the kind of thinking that gets us from great to good. Big thanks to Twista sponsors MYOB and UTS. Their support makes this podcast possible. Thanks to the studio at Wynyard Green for providing the amazing facility where we record this week in Startups Australia. It's the place for creative tech. Find out more at thestudio.org.au. Thanks to Rachel Lonergan, Andrea Gardner, and James Alexander for joining us on this episode. We've recently rebuilt and relaunched our website at twistartupsaus.com. It's got everything. It's got all the shows, all the interviews, all the photos, all the links, and all the stories. So check it out at twistartupsaus.com. We'll be back next week taking a look at two of the mind-blowing startups pitching at the recent Launch Sydney event. Until then, this is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening to This Week in Startups Australia. 